All right. So it is a, uh, it's a privilege for me to be here. I'm really honored. Um, one, because I, I've been coming to the Certainty Conference for uh, several, several years. Uh, even before we called it Certainty Conference, it was just the Spring Bible Conference. Uh, and I've enjoyed the teaching and enjoyed the fellowship. And uh, so it's, I love being here. And, um, but, but even in the years pr- previous, you know, I've seen... Uh, some of the men that I really admire and look up to and have learned so much from that have the, these teaching spots in the morning. It really is an honor for me to be here. Uh, for you who are here at uh, New Philadelphia, this is your home church. Uh, your pastor, Jeff Bartell, was uh, instrumental in my salvation back in uh, when I was in middle school. He was our middle school teacher, and uh, it was through uh, in those years that I gave my, cr- my life to Christ. And uh, then he left for Albania. He, some people will do anything to get away from me. He, he went to a third world country, and uh, no, he's, he's been a, uh, a good influence in uh, investing in me uh, ever since. And another reason why it's special for me is just to be able to be here uh, with Joe McKaig and share this teaching spot with him. Uh, I just want to, you know, we heard a little bit about but this, but uh, Joe was the youth pastor when I received Christ. And it was in under his leadership that I was trained. I was discipled and trained for ministry when he went to uh, be the pastor of Oakland Heights Baptist Church. About a year later, uh, I went to be the youth pastor. And uh, so I've been serving. He's been my pastor. I figured this up uh, the, not, not too long ago. And, man, you've been my pastor for 28 years. So uh, now he's moved back to Decatur. Like, everybody keeps leaving. If I'm in Alabama, they leave to Albania. Albania. If I go to Georgia, they go back to Alabama. So do whatever you can to get away from me. You'll know why in just a few minutes. Um, but it's, it truly has been a joy just uh, collaborating with him, working with him on this subject. You got to uh, hear a sample of why I love him so much. He is my father in the faith and the experience and the love that he has for Christ and for the church. Um, it's been an example to me, and I love it. Well, we're going through these metaphors of the church, and uh, I just want to uh, introduce you to this one. I know you've never heard it before, uh, that the church is a body. So, uh, maybe you've heard that recently in the last 12, 24 hours, something like that. But that's what we're going to talk about today, and one of the things that we emphasize when we think about the church being a body, one of the things that's very clear is you heard this said also last night, that the church is not just an organization, it's an organism. And all six of these metaphors, if you, when you look, uh, after we get done, you could look back at them, but all six of the metaphors, if you flipped over to page one, where uh, Joe McCaig went through uh, those six sessions that we're going to cover, and he previewed them, all six of them are of living things, right? The bride is alive, the body is alive, the flock, the family, the vineyard, but then we do have one called the building, and that's a little strange, right? But the Bible's clear that it's made of lively stones. It's a living building, and it says it even grows. And so this is an, unlike any other building. All of these represent a living organism, and that's who we are as a church, as the universal church, but also as a local church. We are a living body. And so uh, in your notes, uh, I've added a chart from uh, Mark Trotter. Just I've taken a lot from him. I don't want to say stolen. I want to say I've taken a lot uh, from him. And I just wanted to give you this chart for you to see. But when we talk about Jesus uh, being Jesus' body, we're reminded that John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And in this chart that you have, Mark Trotter, as only Mark Trotter can, has uh, shown us how that God replaced Jesus with all three of those, the way, the truth, and the life. And certainly the truth we know to be the Word of God, John 17, 17. And the life we know is the Spirit of God. But the way, as you have in your notes there, you see it substituted, used for the church. And so what we learn about Jesus replacing himself, he replaced his body, his soul, and his spirit. And his body is the local church. And just, I, I love this, the session we just came out of, as special as it is to be the bride of Christ. What, what an incredibly intimate position the local church holds to Christ. And man, the, the exclusivity, man, I love the things we heard about that. Uh, and the body is also extremely precious. If you imagine for a second that we get to be, that, that we are the manifestation of God here on the earth through the church is incredible. And so I want us to see that from Scripture. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3? And we'll pick it up in verse 3. We referenced some of these verses earlier, but Ephesians chapter 3 speaks about this mystery. That's where I want us to pick up. Ephesians 3, 3 says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And he's going to explain uh, this mystery, and it's a good uh, template for us to understand all mysteries, which in other ages was not known, uh, made known unto the sons of man, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit. So that's, we could use that definition for all mysteries. It's something that was formerly not known to the sons of man. It was hidden. Although, as we saw with the Gentile bride instances in the Old Testament, God had truth in his word, but because it's spiritually discerned, he hid it until the time was right for him to reveal it. And that's what he does with this metaphor of the body. That's where he's going next as he explains the mystery of Christ. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The mystery of Christ that priests couldn't see, that prophets couldn't see. It, it, that's incredible. Abraham is the friend of God, but he didn't know it. He didn't know that Jews and Gentiles would be one body, that we, they would be the body of Christ. David is a man after God's own heart. Moses was so close to the Lord, and he, and he saw the glory of God, and so that his face shone, and he put a veil over his face. Even he didn't know what you have the privilege of now knowing. It was hidden from him, but it's revealed to you. That's incredible. Elijah, that great prophet, or anybody else, you know, God has hidden them in time past, but now he's revealed this incredible mystery. It's like God... He, he pulls away the curtains, ta-da, look what I did. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 3 is he's talking about this mystery. And the Jews, I put this in your notes so we could blow through it fast, all right? And we're going to do this quickly. The Jews knew to some extent that the Gentiles would be saved. But they didn't realize that they would be equal heirs and in one body, right? So if, if they looked to, some, to varying degrees, the Old Testament saints would have known that Gentiles would be blessed by God. And the verses are there in your notes. They would know that the Gentiles would bless God, that the, that the Messiah would come to the Gentiles, that Gentiles would be saved by the Messiah, that 
even that the Gentiles would receive the Holy Spirit. But what they didn't know is that God would take Jews and Gentiles and bring them into one new body, the body of Christ. That the very body, we heard last night how that God prepared a body for his son during the 33 years that he was here on earth. That God would then prepare body number two, as he's calling it to manifest the glory of God, to be the image, to be the expression of God on earth. Again, that's, inc- that's incredible. And so if we keep reading, let's skip down to verse 9. It says, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. To, that's, the, that's the purpose of this mystery, of, of hiding it and then revealing it, is to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. And this is the intent. To the intent. What's the purpose in all this? That now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. That the principalities and powers in heavenly places, all these angelic beings, would know the manifold wisdom of God by looking at the church, by seeing what God did and taking two polar opposites, two diametrically opposed races of Jews and Gentiles, and bringing them together into one single body, the body of Christ. It was a mystery that God had hid. He hid it, and then he revealed it all to the intent that those angels would say, oh, glory to God. Look how wise God is. Look what he did. And I just want you to just take note, this isn't about the the overall purpose of God, but but the, the overall purpose of God is bigger than just our redemption. It's about his glory and him receiving glory, not just from humans, but from angels. There's an innumerable host of angels, and he desires to get glory from them, and they will not be saved. But he wants to get glory from them, and that's showing us that the intent, according to his, and that's what verse 11 says, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the eternal purpose, is to get glory. It's not just So man can be saved. That's a very humanistic and self-centered way of looking at the Bible and looking at God and his purpose. That's a great part. That's very meaningful to us. We're very thankful for redemption. But his purpose is much bigger than that. It's not just soteriological, but it's doxological. It's about God's glory, not just about salvation. But that's what God did. He took all Christians, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, now he brings them into one body. And that's one of the reasons why this is such a special uh, metaphor. It's because it's a mystery, just as the, the bride was a mystery. This mystery of Christ, that we would be the body of Christ despite our vast differences, is beautiful. It's part of God's manifold wisdom. So um, you see this in other places in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we see uh, God's revealing how great Jesus is, the greatness of Jesus, and it backs up in verse 13, he's talking about he's the king of the kingdom, in verse 14, he gives his blood for redemption and forgiveness of sin, in verse 15, he's the image of God, he's the firstborn of every creature, in verse 16, it's by him that all things were created in heaven 
and in earth, visible and indivisible, thrones, dominions, and everything was created by him and for him. Verse 17 tells us he's created before all things, or he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And then we get to verse 18. That's what I want you to see, Colossians 1.18. As he's continuing about the greatness of Jesus Christ and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So one thing, just recognize as great as Jesus is, we get to be his body. What a wonderful privilege that is. Right next to being his bride, that we are the body of Christ. That's incredible. And, and the purpose from this verse, the purpose of us being the body of Christ is so that he can receive the preeminence. So that he can be over and above absolutely everything. Because we are his body, as we'll see in a moment, he is the head. He gets to be preeminent above everything. And he's going to show his wisdom. He's going to show his power. He's going to show his glory through the church. So uh, the parallel passage to this is, you know, Colossians and Ephesians run right alongside each other. So it's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. It says that he hath put, God hath put all things under his feet under Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You see what God did? He had body number one for Jesus, who was the, he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then God prepared another body, the church, to be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's who we are, and that's who we're to be. And so as we we look through Scripture, and we're going to see some today, where God talks about the body. The, the recurring theme that he speaks about is, is about membership. And so that's our key word uh, for today. About being the church as a body, each, one has a, each metaphor has a key word that we've placed with it. And this one's about membership. And so uh, in your, this is going to you know, be hard to imagine, but in number one, what we're called to be then is members. We're called to be members. Right? And that's, the, that's actually the word that God uses as he defines us as part of his body to be members of his body. And we don't need to rehash um, the idea of us being the bride, but even in that metaphor of being the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 30 is on the screen, and uh, it's what uh, Pastor Joe has already revealed there. That, but it says that we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. So when we talk about membership, Maybe you think of different things. Maybe you think about being a member of a country club where you pay your dues and you get to use the facilities, you get to golf, you get to eat. Maybe you think about being a member of a sports team. Maybe you think about being a member of a, a health club. And all those, you pay dues, but you get a lot of stuff out of it, right? You, you join for a specific reason. And, and any of those, if you don't like the food at the golf course or the golf course, you, you could just quit the country club, you know? That's, that's our idea of membership. And it slants the way we see church membership. It, 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 it taints the way we see it. And we begin to see things as what we can get out of it. But the way that God uses the word membership is entirely different. It's not about paying a little bit of dues and then getting the rewards. And there, you enjoy the services that they provide. But then when you don't like it, you just switch somewhere else that's better. That's not, not how the Bible uses it. Uh, membership in the Bible is, communicates a, a deep devotion, first of all, to the head, Jesus Christ. 
that he is our head and we are his body. As members of that body, we have a deep devotion to him, but it's also a sense of belonging with the other parts of the body, right? Because we are one body, we are different body parts, and we belong one to another. We're, that's what Romans says, that we're members one of another. And it's a lasting commitment and a responsibility to the body. That you say, I belong in this body and I'm going to serve. I'm going to value the other members. I'm going to embrace the other members. That's what membership means in, uh, in Scripture. But see, our culture doesn't like membership. Even our church culture. Do you know that? More and more people don't have church membership. Um, but we don't like commitment at all, whether it's church or not. Right? In relationships, you know, we'd rather just date and play house, pretend like we're married without the commitment. We'd like all the benefits of marriage without the commitment. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. And, and then if they don't, uh, if things aren't working out so well, somebody starts getting on your nerves, what do you do? You dump them, and you find somebody who's better, right? If something better comes along, well, certainly you upgrade. <laughs> well, we see it with breakups, right, and dating, and we see it with divorce and marriage. We don't like commitment. But it's not just in relationships, also in commerce. We'd rather lease than buy. And, and this one of the reasons people I love Walmart so much is you can go to Walmart, buy a, buy a cheap pair of shoes for 30 bucks, wear them for six months, wear them out, and bring them back. Huh, give me my money back or let me exchange them for a new pair. Why? We don't have a whole lot of commitment. We like a return policy. And I don't know if this is true in your church. I know it's true in ours, that we struggle to sign up for things. We don't like commitment. Are you going to come to the Certainty Conference? Well, I don't know. It just depends on what else comes up. I mean, you know, what if, what if somebody wants to go play disc golf, you know? Or what if this other opportunity arises? I can't really commit to that right now. Even on Facebook, you know, like you, you try to have, they have all these events. Instead of just asking if you're going anymore, they say, are you interested? I mean, <laughs> is this something you think you might come to? <laughs> Why? Be, because we don't like commitment. And so even in churches, we don't like commitment. We, we don't like the idea of membership. And in fact, one of the things that I love about, I was a, during uh, my hiatus from Oakland Heights Baptist Church, I came as the youth pastor. I served there for seven years. Uh, and now I'm back as the pastor. But for six years in there, um, they had sent me and a team to start a church. And one of my favorite things about being a church planter is one of the most uh, grueling and time-consuming things, but was just, taking every doctrinal aspect and every ecclesiastical or church issue and examining the scriptures and just saying, God, what do you say about this? And one of them was about membership. Because, uh, you know, all the church planting conferences I went to, they, they, didn't, they said they don't have membership. Or some of them say, we don't have members, we have owners. And I thought, how jacked up is that? They think they own the church? Don't they know Jesus owns the church? We had to think. I had to think. I had to search the scripture. I had to ask God, well, is this membership thing? Is this just some kind of tradition that we've been doing? Is just some extra biblical thing? And maybe it's wise or maybe it's not. But God, I, want, I need you to show me what this is about. So I've left in your notes uh, br some brief uh, overview. Oh, no, I haven't left them in there. Well, you'd have the outline anyway for the, the reasons for membership. Just I want to just very briefly talk about church membership as we talk about uh, membership today um, and having a role or a roster, having a list. Is that something that the Bible would do? So in your notes there, the first one is the principle. When you think about the principle 
of church membership. It, the vast majority of mentions of church in the New Testament, and I think this has been mentioned already, that like 80% of them deal with the local congregation of believers, a local body. And Christians were separated from the world through persecution and through rejection, uh, and they bonded with one another in a deep sense of belonging and commitment that they clung to each other, being rejected by the world, and often being persecuted by the world. So they came together, not just as a once a week, I, I came and sat and enjoyed the, the apostles' preaching, or I came and sat and enjoyed Timothy's lecture. Well, he does a great job of Bible study. But belonging one to another, and that's really the, uh, the biblical picture that we see. And we'll look at it today in 1 Corinthians 12, but it, it does communicate that, that belonging and, and commitment that's mission, missing today. Our culture sees church membership as once a week attendance at best. I don't know if you know this now, church experts say that faithful attendance now is once a month. One service a month is considered a faithful attender. And that's far different than what we see in the New Testament. E even at that church of Jerusalem, they, they were daily with one another, in, e in their houses daily. So um, the idea of being a once-a-week attender or a consumer or a spectator, that you come and enjoy the services, that's the way our cul culture sees uh, the church. Not as a tight-knit group that were devoted to being with each other. And so it, the New Testament churches, uh, they saw things a lot differently. In fact, if you looked at, you can write it down, we're not going to go there, 1 Timothy 5.9. Paul's writing to Timothy and instructing him how to care for widows, and he talked about the number in their, of their widows. They had a certain group, and they could identify which ones were of their church and met the requirements for who would get taken care of in their church. Were they old and they couldn't remarry? Were they destitute? Then they were in the number, he calls them, that they would care for. And they made a clear distinction on who was a member and who wasn't. Even in the very early church of Jerusalem, Acts 2.41 is, is on the screen. You see that they kept a number. It says that then they that gladly received his word were baptized in the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So what God was showing me is there, there ought to be a number. And we're going to look at uh, tomorrow uh, the, how the church is a flock. And Jesus tells the story of the shepherd who had 100 sheep. And he noticed when one was missing. See, a shepherd, all of these, you know which bride is your bride, correct? Hopefully you know which bride is your bride. You know which body is your body. There are lots of body parts in this room, but there's a clear distinction between what is my body and what is somebody else's. I know and can account for my own body. The flock is the same way, that the shepherd can look and he knows which sheep are his, how many there are. When one's missing, he knows it. A vineyard is the same way. They build a hedge around that vineyard. They can identify the exclusivity of who, who is in our group and who is not in our group. The family is the same way. There are a lot of people in here. And in my family, I know who's in my family. I know who's in my house. And if I, if I show up and there's somebody else there, I'll say this is either a guest or they're an intruder, but I know who is in my family, right? We're not wondering, hey, I wonder if that, is that one of my kids? I, I don't know. If you're struggling with that, you should probably seek some medical help. The church is a building, and it, there are lots of building materials around, but I know which building makes up my house, you know. 
It's only those connected specifically. And so all of these metaphors, we see they define something that can be accounted for. So that's the picture part. We see the principle is that the, the church saw themselves differently than they do. They were belonging to each other. They even had a number. The picture is we have all these different metaphors, these pictures that God gives us of the church, and each of them points to having a uh, clear definition of who is in the church and who is not in the church. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, of the universal church, uh, of which the local church is a type, it has a roster, a list, of whose names are in Jesus' book, and who's on the roll, and who's not. And so, what God was showing me in the principle is there's a principle we need to understand that, there, that membership is biblical, the picture that he gives us, but also the practicality. And this is one that as we begin to look through these metaphors, becomes increasingly clear. But when we talk about those widows, how do you know which widows to care for and which widows not to? How do you discipline somebody who's not in your church? How do you remove them from the fellowship of your church if they were never really in to begin with? How do you distinguish who can serve or who can lead in different capacities? How do you practice the one another's of Scripture? Um, Joe, tomorrow, will go over the family and he'll talk about all the one another's of Scripture. And the most clear application to every one of those is the local church. When he says edify one another or love one another, he's specifically talking to your local body of believers. And then finally, Romans 12, 5, I mentioned this earlier, is on the screen. It says, so we being many are one body in Christ, everyone members one of another. So it expresses our membership to Christ, that we're one body in Christ, but it expresses also our membership to one another, that we are members one of another, that we as a body have a responsibility to one another. We've been called to be members, not just of Christ, but of our local body, that you belong to a local body of believers. And so what are we called to do with that? That's who we're called to be. We're called to be members. So the next blank in your notes is called to do, and that's unite. So we have the idea of attend. That's the way most people think about church. I attend church. I go to church. Versus unite. And there's a, there's a, there's a vast difference between the two. My, my son, uh, he's two years old, and his favorite restaurant to go to, thank goodness it's not McDonald's, um, it's called Moe's. I don't know if you have a Moe's around in New Philly, but there's a, uh, um, welcome to Moe's. That's right. That's what they say. You walk in. It's great. You walk in, you feel at home. They, they have music playing, and when you walk in the door, they all say, welcome to Moe's. It's great. My son's two, and he loves it. He walks in. They say, welcome to Moe's. He looks up, and he says, they said, welcome to Moe's. <laughs> they did. Every time. And, you know, you go there often enough, and they start to know your name. And uh, so they know me by name. And, th and they usually know what I'm going to order. Sometimes I throw them off. You know, th and they'll, they'll identify who's my family, too. So when I show up and my son's not with me, they'll, they'll say, oh, where, where's your son? Or where's your wife? Where's your daughter? You see, but all I'm doing at Moe's is just attending. I enjoy their services. They're great. My son really enjoys their services. And I say that word because that's the word we use for our, our gatherings, right? Our services. That's the way people see our uh, church services. They enjoy the church services. They attend the church services. But I'm not a member at Moe's. 
You know, my son makes a huge, he's two. And beans and rice get all over the floor. It's embarrassing. Sometimes I do ask for a broom. But they don't even give it to me. I never clean up at Moe's. I just walk in. And I enjoy their services. You know what I never do? I never go in the back and help them cook. I never clean up. I'm not part of their marketing team. Nothing. You know what? I just attend. I don't unite. And that's the difference between how people see the church today. Many of them are just attending instead of uniting. My, my favorite football team is the Chicago Bears. Go Bears? Yes. I knew Jeff was in here somewhere. I love the Bears, man. I, I could sing the Super Bowl shuffle for you. We had a rough day yesterday, okay? All right, let's get that out of the way. I could sing the Super Bowl, Super Bowl shuffle. I know the song, every time the Bears sing, they sing Bear Down. Every time they, every time they score, they sing Bear Down. I could sing that song for you. I've, on my Jeep, I've got a license plate plate that says Bears number one fan. On my, hanging from my rear view, I've got a little mini helmet. I love the Bears. I could tell you from the 85 Bears team, every position played, because I was young, but my dad VHS'd those things, and we would re-watch them and re-watch that season. It was fantastic, but you know what? I have never practiced with the Bears. I've never played with the Bears. I've never studied film with them, and I'm certainly not in a lucrative contract with them. I, I like to attend and I like the bears, but I'm not one of the bears. And we got to understand when the, when the Bible talks about the church, we're not just supposed to attend a church, not just supposed to go to a church, but we're supposed to, as members, unite with the church, be part of the church. And so what I want us to do today is to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is probably the, the foremost passage that speaks about the body of Christ and mentions it the most. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you'll probably be familiar with it. He's going to speak about spiritual gifts and how we are the body. And certainly the, the subject of spiritual gifts goes uh, from chapter 12 into chapter 13 and into chapter 14. Uh, but I really want us to focus on his, his metaphor of the body and see what we're supposed to do. And because as we read through this passage, I think it becomes clear that he's speaking about uniting with each other. And so a in your notes, letter A in your notes, is uh, united despite our diversity. I, I just want to throw this out. I hope Jeff really likes my outlines. I did these like an MLA style because I know he's a stickler for outline style, so I did these for you, Jeff. All right, so uh, A in our notes is united despite our diversity. So I want you, as we read verses 4 through 13, I want you to notice how God has designed this body to be united, even though we are diverse. So verse 4 says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the, by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, uh, the interpretation of tongues. But all these work that one and selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. 
so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all, all been made to drink into one Spirit. And you keep seeing this, this uh, contrast, the, the diversity that's in the body, but the unity that's in the body. Right? We saw early on that there's diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit that gives those gifts. Right? Even though we're different, we all have different gifts. God gives them to them to us however He wants us, however He wants to shape that body. But it's the same giver, it's the Holy Spirit. It says that there are diversities of administrations. That's the way you oversee or the way you manage things. And because we have different gifts, we have different things we're responsible for, different administrations. But we're all working for the glory of the same Lord, right? Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6. There's diversity of operations. We have different ways that God works through us, but it's the same God, he says in verse 6, that works in us and works through us. It's the same God which working. See, even though there are diverse, there's diversity, there's a unity that it's the same Lord, Jesus Christ, that we're serving. It's the same Spirit that gives us a spiritual gift, and it's the same God that's working in us, the same Father. And it even says in verse 7 that that the manifestation of the Spirit, this spiritual gift is the manifestation, making obvious, revealing the Holy Spirit. It's given for a purpose, and that purpose is to profit with all. Now, we don't use that word with all very often, but it simply means with all. It's a compound word. I know. I'm breaking big ground here. All right, so... It's with all. It's together. It's to profit the whole body. That's the purpose of all those spiritual gifts. Although there's diversity, there's diversity for the sake of unity, that we are unified despite our diversity. And every single person has a spiritual gift. Every time he speaks about spiritual gifts, God is careful to tell you that everyone has them. And they're all given for the edification of the body with all, to profit the whole body. It says in verse 12 that all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. And so the local church is designed to have great diversity. And and we do. We have different backgrounds, we have different races, we have different social classes, different economic levels, different levels of education, different spiritual gifts, but we are united. Despite all of those differences, we have so much more in common. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same God the Son who we serve, and it's the same God the Father who works in us. And it it may seem almost impossible in our day. I mean, particularly right now in our culture, there's a lot of division in our country, isn't there? Republicans and Democrats, socialists and capitalists, whoever thought that would be a big deal. Traditional and contemporary in our churches, how could we have unity despite all of these differences? There's formal and there's casual or As they would say it, the formal people see it as being reverent, and the casual people see it as being genuine, however you see it. We have black and white, and we have Latino and Asian. How can we have unity with so much diversity? You know, when uh, the New Testament was written, when uh, Ephesians was written, the uh, the temple in Jerusalem had a middle wall where the Jews could go into this, this place to worship the Lord, but the Gentiles had an outer court, and there was a four-foot wall that divided them. And I'm kind of short, so four foot's about right here on me. And they could look over, 
And they could see what was going on, but they couldn't be a part of it. And let me, let me read to you what Ephesians chapter 2 says happens uh, when Jesus died. This is what he says, Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. It says that Jesus, having abolished in his flesh the enmity between Jew and Gentile. That's the context of Ephesians chapter 2. The Jews and Gentiles used to be aliens from each other. They, they used to be separated, right? Even in the temple they were separated. And it says, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. I love that. Jesus is the one who abolished the enmity. There are differences, and there are even some reasons for us to not get along with our different backgrounds and our different cultures. There are some things that we don't uh, like about each other in our uh, carnal environments, in our secular world. We have differences. We have racism, just like they did. But if God abolished the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, which is deeply uh, seated in their culture and their religion and, and their beliefs and in their race, he can also abolish the enmity in our churches to make us united. In fact, he has done that. And in fact, it says that, we, and we saw this last night, that we don't have to create peace. We just endeavor to keep the peace. That's what he says here. Jesus made peace, so making peace. He's the one that made it. We don't have to create it. He already made peace. And how did he do that? By reconciling both into one body. I, and I love this because sometimes we get the idea that the Gentiles needed to be reconciled to the Jews. But the ultimate thing he's saying is both had to be reconciled to God. Both were lost. The Jews were wrong and the Gentiles were wrong. And once we both come to the place of realizing, hey, we're both sinners. Just like you maybe come from a different background, but you were a sinner. I come from a different background. I was a sinner. We all need the same Savior. It's recognizing our unity. And he says that of twain, of two, he made one new man. Did you notice that? He didn't bring the Gentiles into the Jews. He brought a new man, a new body, one body, that's the mystery of Christ. That's what we read about and he would talk about in Ephesians chapter 3. That he took one new body and he put Jews and Gentiles in one body, reconciling both unto God by the cross. He's the one that creates the peace. We're to unite with one another, despite our differences. If there's any place in this whole, you know, our, our secular culture wants to see, uh, they want to see unity. And they, they want to see uh, different races embrace each other. They want to see different religions coexist. They want to see everybody come together and quit squabbling and arguments and accept each other for who we are. We're all humans. We're all one race, the human race, right? We hear this stuff all the time. If there ought to be one place where that's evidently manifested, it's in the church of the Lord. It's because he reconciled both of us, all of us, no matter where we came from, he reconciles us to himself and places us in one new body. It's a beautiful thing. And we belong to each other. We're members. We're to unite under Jesus with one another. So let me show you Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called into one body. And by the way, be ye thankful. That would solve a lot of problems, a lot of complaining, 
if we would just be thankful. But he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And when he says that, he says, to the which also you're called. You've been called to peace. You haven't been called to get your way. You haven't been called to, to promote your specific culture or the way you th- like things. The Gentiles were not called to continue what they were doing. And the Jews weren't called to continue their tradition. They were called to peace. And so we are, as the body of Christ, we are called to peace. And by the way, be thankful. we got a lot to be thankful about. And sometimes we can get discouraged or frustrated or angry at things that aren't going the way that we like. And a solution to that is just be thankful. Just take a moment out and ask God, what should I thank you for? That would solve a lot of our problems. Let me show you Colossians chapter 3. Because the verse 15 tells us what, what we're supposed to do, but 12 through 14, the previous verses, explain what that looks like. So we're all in agreement, man. We, we need to have peace, right? We need to be united together. We're called to peace. And then he says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 through 14, Well, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. He's telling us what this is supposed to look like. If we're going to live in peace one with another. And this does not really demonstrate, this doesn't really describe uh, what most of our churches look like. And I'm not speaking specifically to our fellowship of churches, but churches in our country. American, if I can call it churchianity, doesn't look like bowels of mercies or kindness. It doesn't look like humbleness of mind or meekness. It doesn't look like people forgiving each other or forbearing one another. He tells us to put on charity. And this, this passage that we're in uh, in, our, in your Bible there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it speaks about the church as a body, and it's the subject of spiritual gifts. And then chapter 14 is also very clearly about spiritual gifts and the body. And in between them is what we call the charity chapter, right? You know that, that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? Maybe you've heard it in, um, in weddings a lot. Uh, usually they, they quote uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and that's a, that's a good uh, application to that, man. You ought to uh, live out God's love one for another. It's absolutely true. But the clearest application, most direct application of the charity chapter, the charity is long-suffering and it's kind, it's, it's not in a marriage, necessarily, the clearest application is within the local church. And those things in 1 Corinthians 13 are the very things that we ought to be living out. And every church is going to struggle with this. It seems easy. Oh, God's called us into peace. He's made peace. But as we heard last night, we have to endeavor to keep it. It's not just going to be kept on its own. We have to actively make it happen, to put on bowels of mercy, to put on, because that's not natural for us. That's not our natural man. That's the new man that we put on. Humbleness of mind and meekness and forgiving one another and forbearing one another. And those things aren't natural. We have to put those on. And it's difficult to do. And in your notes, you see how every church struggles 
with division. You can look through the churches in the New Testament and see that, that the Corinthians were divided, right? Over and over, we see their divisions. In fact, they were even suing each other at law. The Galatian saints were biting and devouring one another. In Ephesians, uh, Paul wrote about keeping the unity in Philippi. Two women are battling it out in the church. Paul called the Laodiceans to be knit together in love. The Colossians were commanded to stop quarreling and forgive one another. The Thessalonians were instructed to be at peace among themselves. If all of these churches struggle with unity, we will too. But God's called us to peace. He's called us to unite together despite our differences. In fact, God knew this would be a problem. Jesus knew this would be a problem. In John chapter 17, in what we often call his high priestly prayer, he prays that those disciples, they're the embryo of the church, that they would be one as he and the Father were one. He prayed for their unity. So we're to be unified despite our diversity. Point B in your notes is united for our functionality. United for our functionality. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we look at verses 14 through 20. It says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole, hearing, if the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if, the bo- and if uh, they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, but one body. And it explains how that each one of our body parts is different. We, but we have to work together to be functional. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who had a, some sort of disability where their body wouldn't work together properly. But it doesn't function like it's supposed to. God designed us to be functioning together. You know, ears and eyes do excellently the things that ears and eyes do. Eyes do a great job of seeing when they're healthy. And ears do a great job of hearing. It's incredible the things that we can do, that we can see. I mean, I know that seems elementary, but just to, just to fathom that God designed these organs to be able to perceive light and how it hits things or or to hear sound vibrations and turn it into things that make sense for communication in in our ears it's it's pretty amazing but you know what an eye does not do well it doesn't pick anything up hands are really good for that eyes are terrible at that and hands really aren't the best for seeing i mean you can kind of try to feel your way around but that's awful so we know that all the body parts are different and god puts every part in the body, he puts different, diverse body parts in so that we can function because we have roles that we need to fulfill. We have purpose to fulfill. So he talks about in verse 15 that the foot can't say, oh, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, or the ear, because I'm not of the eye, I'm not of the body. And we all need to realize that we were shaped by God to fulfill a specific purpose inside of the body, inside the local church. In other words, your local church is why you were designed the way that you were. So just recently, well, I told you that we had started a church. We planted Connect Church. And we were there for six years, and it was truly um, one of the most fun 
and rewarding times of my life. I loved it. And what God did is he showed us there's a time to plant and there's a time to pluck up that which was planted. And he took our, our church plant and we united back with our mother church. And some of the things that I wondered about, about, you know, God, why do we have all these people who are gifted this way? It, that doesn't seem like it provides our body a whole lot of balance. You know what I'm really bad at? Just to be honest, I'm bad at showing mercy. I'm bad at that. You got problems? Well, too bad for you. You know, <laughs> suck it up, buttercup. We all got problems. I ain't got time to be mess messing with your problems. And as cruel as that seems, and I try to put on bowels of mercy, it's not the way that God works through me the best. And God seemed to be uh, gifting the members that we had a certain way, and I, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me until God united those members with their mother church. And then we saw the areas where Oakland Heights could use some help are the areas where he's made us strong. And the areas where we were weak were the places where they were strong. And I know that's a strange application. We talk about uniting churches, but God does the same thing on an individual basis when he takes you and places you within a body of Christ. And you think, I, I just can't teach like Mark Trotter can teach or preach. I should say preach. <laughs> like, Mark Trotter should, like Mark Trotter can preach. I just can't, I just can't do these things I, I, like other people can. But God's made you to be you. And we're to be united for our functionality. We have to be able to work together, even though we're diverse. We work together. Romans chapter 12 confirms, this is in your notes, that the local church is comprised of many members, and the different members have different offices. And those members need to be connected to each other and exercising their spiritual gifts. He gives us each other as a place where we exercise our spiritual gifts, the local church. Verse 18 in our text tells us, that uh, God hath set many members, now God set the members as it pleased him. Can you imagine that? That God has given you some sort of vital task to perform in the body. Something that's so important to the functioning of your local church. And you're important to it. And you're, the reason why he shaped you that way is not to profit you. It's to profit with all. It's to profit the whole body. And that's why he says in verse 20, but now there are many members but one body. He keeps pointing back to this unity that we're to have. There's no concession for the arm to say, well, this is what I'm passionate about. There's no concession for the foot to say, but I'm burdened about this over here. There's no concession for, for the eye to say, oh, but you know what we really ought to do. No, they all work together. And Jesus is the head, and he has uh, under shepherds who help direct and lead that body. But all the body functions together as one, like-minded heading in the same direction. Not only for functionality, but also uh, by functionality. When, when you work, when you perform your task, what happens is the body gets closer and closer together as each body part begins to fulfill its specific function in the body. It becomes more coordinated, and it becomes more effective, and it becomes more united. I want you to see this verse... Uh, that we looked at last night, Ephesians 4, 16. When it speaks about the body, it says, from whence the whole body fitly joined together and compacted. See that joined together and compacted, pressed together? That's the unity. By that which, how many joints? Every joint supplieth. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, 
maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And it, what I love about this, he talks about two different kinds of growth here. The increase of the body and the edifying of the body. The increase, if you just search that out through Scripture, it's always mathematical. It's always a quantitative growth. And the edifying is a qualitative growth. And God has placed us in the body such that when we all work and we all supply, the body grows. It grows in number and it grows in spiritual development as well. So we're united for our functionality. We saw that C in your notes is we're united for our necessity. So verses 21 through 25, it says, And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our comely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Man, this, this passage has already talked about how you regard yourself, that every part is important. And you, do, you can't say, well, because I'm not this other part, I'm not of the body. But now he's saying how you regard other people, that we need the other people. And sometimes there are some people in the body that we think are more feeble. They're not as strong. But I, I like the way he, he says this. He says, which seem to be more feeble. Sometimes thing, people seem to be more feeble, and they're not feeble at all. But those are parts that are necessary. And those things that seem to be less honorable. Upon those, we bestow more abundant honor. And what, what we're beginning to see is we, we can't just say, well, the body doesn't need me. But we also can't see we don't really need that person. Yeah. Every single person is important. And sometimes, in my, just in, as uh, Brother Alan Shelby would say, uh, experiential exegesis, sometimes in my experience I've found that the people that you think could couldn't, would do the very least couldn't help much, are more of a burden than they are a help to the ministry, God uses them in fantastic ways. So there was a, um, some, some of my friends would know about this young man. There was a, uh, a young man named Eddie that was in my, <laughs> people are laughing already. Um, Eddie was in our, um, my small group when I was a small group leader in the high school at Decatur Baptist. And uh, he had some disabilities, had some challenges. And, you know, um, his family wasn't great, and no one was making sure he was wearing deodorant, and no one uh, made sure he brushed his teeth or had clean clothes, and uh, he was in a bad place. And it would have been easy to look at him and say, man, this guy's a hindrance to the ministry. But I'm going to tell you what that did. God used Eddie to bring that whole group together and unite us. And it was beautiful to see 15, 16, 17-year-old guys love a kid that nobody else loved. And it focused us, it gave us God's heart for each other. Sometimes the people that we think are, are unnecessary or even a hindrance are the most necessary. And so we have to regard each member as important. If we were to say everybody's got uh, a, a body part, you know, which is the least important? Which is the most important? You might look in your church and say, this is the most important person in our church, right? If we looked at the whole church, the universal church even, 
Who's the most important person in all the church? Who do you think it'd be? Thank goodness I was afraid somebody's going to say something else. Jesus, that's right. (laughs) Jesus is the most important person. He is the head of the body. Listen, sometimes you can go without a body part, but you know which body part? You get severed, you don't live. It's the head. you got to have the head. But I, I just want to point out to you verse 21. It says, at the end of it, it says, nor again the head to the feet. It says the head can't say to the feet. Now, in his own... Is Scripture's own interpretation of this. Jesus is the head. And Jesus has limited himself to his body. And he needs the highest member, needs the absolute lowest member, the foot. So we need each part. Maybe if, if we took out a, a saw, surgical saw, we said, hey, we're going to take off one of your body parts. Which one do you want it to be? You, don't, you wouldn't want to lose any. Maybe you could prioritize and say, well, I guess I could do without a this, this finger. Take off my ring finger or something. But all of them are important. And those that we see, think are feeble or uncomely, unattractive. In fact, I got some pictures for you. Does anybody know what this is a picture of? A brain. That's pretty good. Does it look beautiful? Isn't it lovely? Oh, man, I'd like to hug that thing. Of course not. That's disgusting. It looks slimy, too. How about, but you can't live without that, by the way. You lose your heart, it's over. How about the next one? Anybody know what that is? Kidneys. Oh, man, I, a couple weeks ago I had a k- couple kidney stones. Man, that was brutal. When those things aren't acting right, it's bad. You, you need your kidneys. They're not very attractive. They look pretty disgusting. How about the next one? Anybody know what that is? It's a kidney. That's what Google says anyway. People are looking confused at me. I don't know. I'm no doctor. That's what Google says. But all those parts are important, right? Every part, no matter what it is, man. If you lose a kidney, you're in bad shape. You lose a liver, you're in bad shape. Did I say kidney just a second ago when I looked at that last one? I meant liver, sorry. Time's getting long. Let's keep going. Uh, Verse 24 tells us that he tempers the body together. All those parts, the uncomely parts, the comely parts, the the feeble parts, the strong parts, the honorable parts, the unhonorable parts, the dishonorable parts. All of them, he tempers them together. That means he changes the structure. He adds some heat, maybe, and he changes what they're made of. He adds some things, he takes away some things to make it stronger, and that's what God will do to the local church. He will add some things, and he will take away some things to make it stronger. And the whole point is in verse 25. Again, he's speaking to our unity when he says that there be no schism, that there should be no division in the body. That's what he wants us to be, united for our functionality. D is united for our maturity. And if we kept going through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we picked it up in verse 14, we'd see that he consistently confirms what we learned in chapter 12 and verse 7 that all these parts are to profit the body with all, the whole thing. It's all for the edification of the whole body, and that's what chapter 14 tells us. Uh, If we got to 1 Corinthians 14, 4, the first five verses are prioritizing prophecy over tongues. And the reason why he says that prophecy is more important than tongues is he says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth 
edifieth the church. It's to see the point of every part is to profit the whole body. Because no one can understand when somebody speaks in tongues, it was not accomplishing the purpose of edifying the body. So again, in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. That's the main point. That's the point, is the edifying the whole body. And he continues on, in verse 26 he concludes and summarizes, and he says, Let all things be done unto edifying. The purpose of who you are is for the purpose of edifying your local church. So when you take your abilities and you take your spiritual gifts or your experiences or your skills and you exercise them outside of that, you're missing the point. Let all things be done to the edifying of the body. And if, if what we do is we step outside of where God designed those spiritual gifts to be, we've, we've corrupted them, we've perverted them, and we're missing the point to which he gave them to us, and he's in, in gifted us spiritually, is to edify the whole body. And the body is where you get that. It's where you get edifi- edified yourself. It's where you grow. It's where you mature. Is in a local church. It doesn't happen other places. You, you see people try to make it happen in other places. It doesn't work out so well. So I want to talk to you about the role of the pastor within this. So let's cl- quickly do this. The, the role of the pastor within the body is he is the perfecter of the body. He is the one who's working to perfect. We saw uh, last night in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, in fact, why don't you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 8 picks up and he says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captives, captive and gave gifts unto men. So Jesus gave gifts unto men. And the open parenthesis, if we skip the parenthesis and step down to where he concludes the sentence, that statement, he says, And he gave some, here are the gifts that he gave, gifts that he gave to the church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and teachers and some pastors and teachers. And so the Bible refers to the local church as members receiving gifts for the purpose of edifying the body. And he talks about pastors being a gift to edify the body, to perfect the saints. And so you have in your notes there, we're not going to take a whole lot of time to look these up, but I wanted you to have them, that your pastor is a gift to your church. He's a gift to your body. He's a gift to your flock. He's, he's awesome. Look at the things that pastors do for you. They watch for your souls. Man, somebody is watching out for your soul but as somebody who gives an account. That's how closely they're watching for your souls. They're feeding the flock. They're in a in sample or a pattern or a template for the flock. The shepherd, the pastor, knows his sheep and is known by them. He seeks and rescues when you go astray. He watches out for wolves. He gives his life for the flock. He prays for the sick. Man, what an awesome gift that you have these pastors. God said he gave gifts unto the church, unto men. And he gave some that were apostles. And he gave some that were prophets. And he gave some that were evangelists. And he gave some that were pastors and teachers. And then he continues in verse 12 to tell you why. And what we have in verse 12 are three cascading purpose clauses. 
right? They, it's a purpose clause, the word for, or so that, or for the purpose of, and then he's going to tell you one thing, and then the next thing is the purpose for that. So let's look at them. The first one in verse 12, why did he give pastors and teachers? For the perfecting of the saints. The purpose of the pastor is to perfect the saints, to build them up, to grow them, and why, would, why do pastors need to perfect the saints is the second phrase. It's the second purpose clause, for the work of the ministry. Sometimes people think these are just in a series, but if you'll notice, there's no and. There's no conjunction that links them together, like these are all three, the purpose for the pastor. No, this is the first statement is for the pastor, and then it cascades to the next one. The pastor is for the purpose of perfecting the, the saints. And why does the pastor perfect the saints? so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. Someone has to grow you up so that you can do the work of the ministry. And you know what happens when all the church members, when they all start functioning as a body, when they all start exercising their gifts and their talents and are all involved in ministry instead of just one man trying to do it? For the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the pastor perfecting the saints so they can do the work of the ministry. And when all the saints do the work of the ministry in the body of Christ, is edified, it's built up. God has a tremendous value, not just in a pastor, but in each individual body part. He wants to use you. He wants to use the people in your ministry. And you may look at yourself and think, well, I, I'm just not like the hand, so I must not be very beneficial to the body. Or you may look at somebody else and say, well, I don't see what kind of potential they have. They're one fry short of a happy meal. You may look at people and undervalue them, but that's wrong. God wants pastors to perfect the saints, and he wants saints to do the work of the ministry, and by doing those, the body of Christ is edified. And the result of that shows up in verse 13. This is the indicator that pastors are doing a good job of perfecting the saints, and that saints are doing a good job of doing the work of the ministry, because the body of Christ is edified in what it looks like in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a perfect man, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Edifying leads to unity. Edifying is, is an indicator that there's maturity, and then unity comes from that. Edification leads you to know Jesus, not just know about Him, but to know Him personally. Edification leads to being perfect, complete, to being the fullness of Christ. He goes on in verse 15 and 16 and says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body and to the edifying of itself in love. We we saw some of those last night. I don't want to belabor the point. But if the church isn't growing, quantitatively, increase, and qualitatively, edifying, then we've got to ask the question, are saints doing the work of the ministry? Or are they using their gifts somewhere else? It's not just to profit myself. It's not so that I can go somewhere and make a lot of money off the skill that God's given me. Or I can go out and, and I, I can bless, you know, the, the, the people at large with my skills and my gifts and my abilities. It's to profit the local church. And if, if we don't see the church growing, we have to ask the question, are the saints doing the work of the ministry? And if, 
If saints aren't doing the work of the ministry, then we have to ask the question, are pastors perfecting the saints? Because the natural outcome of pastors perfecting the saints is saints doing the work of the ministry. And the natural outcome of saints doing the work of the ministry is, is the increase and edifying of the body of Christ. Let me, let me give you our last one about we're united in our authority. Colossians chapter 2, why don't you turn there with me? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 through 22. The thing about the body is we're, we're connected to the head. and We're subject to the head. Your mind controls your body. It tells it what to do. And your body should obey. Did I tell you to turn to Colossians 2? All right. We're in verse 16. It says, Let no man therefore judge you in any meat, or judge you in meat, or in, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But check this out. But the body is of Christ. Wow. It says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility or worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, point, body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered, and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, and taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men? I want you to see in here, it says the body should be holding the head. See, the head is our authority. And what we ought to do is hold the head. Not, in contrast, the things that they were holding instead, they were holding the commandments of men instead of the head. And it's very easy for churches to slip into holding on to tradition or holding on to our rules instead of holding on to the head, holding on to Jesus and his instructions. We have his mind, the word of God. So we hold on to that. And that's why he says, don't let anybody judge you over meat and drink and holidays and new moons and Sabbaths. Those are all liberal liberties and legalism. That's not the issue. Don't get trapped in all of those things of preference and tradition. He goes on and he says, don't lose your reward with voluntary humility and worshiping of angels and rituals and, and superstitions. Hold the head. What does God say in his word? Who is the church supposed to be? He is our authority. He is our head. And so instead of coming up with our own thoughts, we, we, we subject ourselves, we submit ourselves to him. And I love the word head. It's, it's consistently used to speak of authority. 1 Corinthians 11.3, we see this. Uh, it says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. He's the authority of every one of us. And the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Did you know that God always works through a structure of authority? Even within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, there's a structure of authority. That's why Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And so... In marriage, it's the same way. In the church, it's the same way. There's a structure of authority that, uh, that God gives. But the, but the word is also consistent with the metaphor that he's talking about, that the church is a body, and Jesus is the head. He is not just the authority, but he functions as the director of the body. So Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we saw this verse earlier. He says, He hath put all things under his feet and had 
and gave him to be the head over how many things? All things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. We don't decide what we want to do. We don't determine our own values. We don't deem which doctrines we think should be kept or which traditions we think should be kept. It's not our political agenda, our social agenda, our preferences, our history, our tradition, our culture that defines who we are and what we do. It is the head. It is Jesus. He is our authority. And that brings us into unity. That we all have, listen, we all have different ideas on what we think is important. We all have different preferences and traditions, and we all have different things that are important to us, that are burdens to us, that we like or dislike. But none of those matter. Jesus is the authority. So when each body part submits to his headship, then we can be united together. So don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. That'd be bad. You can live without a lot of things, but you can't live without your head. All right, let me... uh, Let me move on to called to avoid. What we're called to be is we're called to be members. What are we called to do? We're called to unite. So it follows that what are we called to avoid? Division. That's our blank. Division. How we see that play out in churches. We see it in a lot of different ways, and here are a few ideas how we see it happen. One is splits of the local church. See, we're, we're supposed to have unity, and so what Satan would love to have happen is for the body of Christ to be divided. We're just talking specifically about your local church being divided. And it happens a lot. There in your notes, you have some of this information in there. When God speaks about the body, he speaks about unity. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays for the unity of the disciples. And notice this, church splits are rarely over doctrine, but they're over personal authority. They're over money. They're over tradition and preferences and feelings. Those are the things that divide us. But you see, Jesus died, and in his flesh he abolished enmity, and he made us both in, in one body. And he is the head over that body. And he intends for that body to be unified. All throughout 1 Corinthians 12, we're seeing that we are called to unity, that we're called to peace, that we're called to be members one of another. I'm not saying there's never a time to leave a church. There are times to leave a church. But when we see organized splits of a church to go on your own and go under your own authority, go start another one. That's where the Bible has a problem with it. But Jesus made peace in the first century. He can make peace in the 21st century. He can unite us together. He's bigger than the differences that we have and the problems that we face. We are going to face problems. Every church in the New Testament faced problems with division. And we will too. The question is, are we going to be a body? Are we going to unite with each other? Are we going to function together? Are we going to allow Jesus to be our authority? Are we going to let our preferences and our own traditions and our human thinking be the authority? The second thing that causes division in the church, in my estimation, is consumerism of the local church. You see, we're designed to profit with all, the whole body. We're supposed to edify the whole body. But the selfishness of this world has permeated the church. However, the church isn't to be viewed by what we can get from it, but how we fit in it. The church is not designed for me just to be blessed, to come and receive. 
but I'm supposed to unite with it, not just attend, to enjoy the services, but to unite with it. So a lot of times we see in our culture church shopping. People travel around, and I like the children's ministry of this church, and I like the music of that church, and I like the skinny jeans on those worship leaders. If you're a worship leader, evidently you should have skinny jeans. Or we see church hopping. Yeah, I went here for a little while, but you know what? I keep falling in the same sin. Maybe I'll go to another church and it'll fix it. I went to this church for a while. My marriage still stinks. I mean, I'm doing the same things. I'm not really growing, but maybe if I go to another church, that'll help. I change my environment. That's why most people spend about two to three years at a church. Because they haven't really united with it. They just come and attend. And when the services aren't worth the cost, or they find something better along the way, they hop to another. And sadly, this happens not just with members, it also happens with leaders. The, the average pastoral tenure in the United States is two to three years. Pastors hopping around. Uh, the third one we see is the abandonment, abandonment of the local church. And you, these are in your notes, you can read these. As you were baptized into the universal body of Christ, God has set you as a, a member in a local church. Without you, the local body's handicapped, handicapped, but outside the body, you are useless and dying. Your, your liver is really important. But when you take that liver outside of your body, it does nobody any good, and it just rots. All that you are, including your natural abilities, personality, resources, experience, opportunities, capacity to develop skills, were all given by God and for His glory, and specifically, He desires for you to exercise those within the local church body. Another way we see divisions happen is through counterfeits in the local church. Um, so, you know, the Bible doesn't give us like a clear, concise, explicit definition of what a, a local church is. So I've got in your notes uh, one definition of that. It can be identified by those who identify themselves as a church, and that's a big part. If you don't see yourself as a church, you're not really a church. Second one, led by qualified, ordained leaders. And here's where a lot of people fall short. They have a group of people together to do a Bible study, but, but no qualified, ordained leader, pastor. Or they have some kind of organization, but no pastor. Uh, they gather together for preaching prayer and worship by those who fellowship with each other, observe the ordinances of the church, and carry out the mission of the church. It's not just one of those. It's all of them. And they're, in your notes there, uh, I'll let, let you look at those at your leisure later. But uh, there's the attributes of the New Testament churches that you can see in there. Uh, one of the ways that we find counterfeits of the local church is what we call, what, what I'm calling, uh, loose church groups. Just by uh, people who decide, this is my church over here. Sometimes we try to start some Bible studies in uh, areas where we are. And oftentimes people go to a Bible study and say, well, this is my church. And, you know, that's noble, that's good that they're identifying that this is an outreach of a church and uh, that this is related to Jesus and what a church is. But uh, Bible studies and fellowship groups don't meet the description that we just listed of a local church, right? And sometimes you'll hear them quote Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you, right? Well, praise the Lord, man, that's, an, that's a wonderful promise to those apostles that that no matter where they went, man, Jesus was going to be with them. 
But does that mean that a church exists everywhere, that two or three believers are gathered together? I was just on an airplane, and there were at least two or three believers. I knew some people on the flight. Was that a church? Is every home of, a, of believers, is that, a, is that its own church? How about coffee shops? You walk into a coffee shop, you sit down, you're doing a little bit of work. There's another believer over there. Are you now a church? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Sometimes the word is never taught. Praises are never sung. Ordinances are never observed. Missions never engaged. And an offering is never taken. Hello. And Jesus is never even mentioned. Is, is that a church? Because two or three? No, of course not. That's not what Jesus is saying. Here's what's tragic in your notes. You say most two or three are gathered, only fulfill two or three of the requirements of being a church. And one of the most glaring, one of the most striking uh, absences is that of lack of qualified, ordained leaders or pastors. So you've got some peers together that study the Word of God together, but no pastor. And remember, the pastor is the perfecter of the body. And so what happens if, if you have a Bible study group together, but, but no pastor? It leads to some things, and I wrote five of them down. One of them is it leads to immaturity because there's no perfecter. There's nobody working to disciple them and make sure people are growing in their faith. There's immaturity. There's apathy when there's not a bishop or an overseer. No one's provoked to the Great Commission, so they just let the lost world die and go to hell. We found that in our, in our Bible studies that we uh, started. If, if we're not careful that they, they tend toward being inward. And people think churches become inward. They do. If there's not a pastor, a bishop, an overseer, to make sure that we're focused on the commission that God's given to us. Another thing that comes in is heresy, and that's predictable. Without a, without a, a shepherd there, wolves come in. And without maturity, children are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. False teaching comes in. and There's nobody there feeding the flock, leading the flock. So those two or three groups end up in heresy. Another thing they end up in is carnality. Without an elder, man, there's nobody who, who's the authority and who calls people out and uh, calls out sin. So everybody just does whatever's right in their own eyes. And uh, eventually, man, everybody just lives in sin. And nobody has the right to judge anyone. Judge not, they would say, with that one verse that they know apostasy, and that's the last one I'm going to cover today, is sheep go astray. That's just what we do. We're going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow, that we're the flock of God. You know what we do? I do it. We go astray. And we all need a pastor. We all need a leader. We all need somebody who cares for us and gives us accountability. And a lot of times, these, uh, all the time, these two or th three groups, they go astray. When there's no shepherd, Nobody keeps them traveling together. So the church is a body. God's created us and designed us. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't known. It was just part of his plan that we would be a body. And certainly the universal church is the body of Christ. But that's, that's the prophetic fulfillment of the type. And sometimes people marginalize the type because, oh, that, that's just a type. The local church is just a type of the universal church. But the bride, your wife, is just a type of the church as well. And God's very clear that he wants you, husbands, 
to love your wife, to, to sacrifice yourself. And although, wives, your husband is just a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know we are not the Lord Jesus Christ. Still, he says, nevertheless, let wives submit to their husbands. Let them reverence their husband. He's very serious about the type, just as he is about what it pictures, the archetype. So we look at this type of the church, we see that God, when 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, ye are the body of Christ. That, see, in, in southern words, we would say y'all. Y'all are the body of Christ. He's speaking to a local church, and he calls them the body of Christ. And all the instruction that we're seeing from, a, um, from 1 Corinthians specifically are instructions about how you act and function and belong within the local church. And it's just as important as everything else. So uh, sometimes in reaction to you know, what this culture sees as institutionalized religion or uh, rituals or dead liturgy, our culture swings on the other side of the pendulum, swings the pendulum to the other side. And they say, we want something organic. We want something that's um, not so structured and rigid. And so they like some of these seemingly organic uh, alternatives to the body of Christ. But that's not up to us whether or not we like the body. In fact, it would probably be a bad thing for a husband to tell his wife, I like, I like your head, I just don't like your body. That's probably not a wise move. And so, as the body of Christ, man, we ought to be careful with how we treat the local church. We're the body of Christ. We're called to an esteemed privilege to being his body, a bodily representation of Jesus on earth. So he calls us to be members. He calls us to unite with one another and to avoid division, however that may appear in our contexts. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. Thank you for your, your word. and Thank you for this incredible privilege that you give us to be your body. God, I pray that you'll help us to be faithful for our churches and the members that we have to be faithful, to be members, uniting one with another. Help us to be diligent as pastors to perfect the saints so that the body can be edified and so that it can increase. And most of all, so that the Lord Jesus gets the glory that he's worthy of and that it would be known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places your manifold wisdom. We pray all this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.